Good morning. It is nice to see all of you here today. Um, we have a couple announcements before we jump into the lesson that I want to bring to your attention. And the first has to do with relief for the Bahamas. Um, as we are all well aware, uh, if we've watched the news at all, we know that the islands are in a really, really bad way. And so we want to do whatever we can to help uh, our neighbors uh, to the east. Um, this is going to be a long process. Uh, various uh, towns have been decimated. Um, a couple church buildings affiliated with Churches of Christ have been affected. Various members. Um, uh, I think that at last count there was one congregation that had 60 members that lost uh, within one of the Churches of Christ that lost everything they have. And so these are some supplies that you can begin bringing today. Uh, there will be the large plastic bins. They're already there in the foyer. And um, uh, the list is in the bulletin as well if you'd like to look through that list. Um, we are cooperating and collaborating with various churches in the area. Uh, we will receive these supplies and then take them down to the Gold's Church of Christ and they will be uh, setting up different ways to transport these items. We'll be doing this. There's no specific time limit. Uh, we'll just kind of play it by ear and kind of see how uh, the, the relief efforts go. We're also going to be taking up a special contribution next Sunday, so you can uh, come prepared for that or you can do your online giving. Um, this will probably be the first of a couple different contributions. Uh, we've got Blessed to be a Blessing coming up in November. And so uh, very likely we'll be diverting a lot of those funds to help our, our friends there. I know a lot of the people in the Bahamas are trying to get off the island because it's just not uh, livable. And uh, so we want to continue to pray and um, and help in whatever we can. If you know of family members or even within our congregation, uh, please uh, get in touch with the office and, and, and we'll do what we can to try and uh, facilitate any kind of aid um, as with any kind of relief effort, we, we want to be careful and cautious to make sure that the, the funds and the supplies get in the right hands. Uh, it's just uh, uh, frustrating to no end to gather supplies and gather money only to find it not being used in the best possible ways uh, in, in different sites. And so um, uh, the elders have been praying about, they have been looking at, they've been receiving reports, and uh, we'll have more information specifically within the coming weeks of where the funds will get directed and how they will be used and uh, who the individuals are that will be using them. So for now, we can bring begin bringing supplies, we can be praying before, during, and after, and we can also be preparing for the special contribution uh, next Sunday. Next Sunday, also, we are going to have a special workshop. Uh, we're calling it a part of a series of best practices, and this specific topic has to do with uh, worshiping with our children. And this is for all parents of children, but also for any members that would like to participate in this workshop. It will be in the school library immediately after. Lunch will be provided, and uh, Julie Bergman is in charge, and so if you'd uh, like any further information, you can contact her, uh, but that will also be next Sunday after uh, the assembly. I don't know who in your experience is the strongest person you know. Uh, whoever that person is, their strength at some point comes to an end. 
If it's a physical strength, as they get older, their muscles will deteriorate. If it's strength of character, many of the individuals that we put on pedestals and look to to be our sources of strength uh, politically, spiritually, unfortunately, in many, many different realms, uh, they, they will also stumble and fall. No matter what kind of strength it is, their strength and their impact is limited even the strongest of the strong. I don't know who the weakest person is in your experience that you've known. I I don't know how you would qualify that, but if I were to make a list of the weakest people I know, the list might start with a guy whose name sounds a lot like Jim. (laughs) Uh, uh, Because I know my faults and I know my limitations. Well, There's a battle that's going to take place in a garden, and we're going to read about that battle. And on the one hand, it's a battle between the weakest of the weak and the strongest of the strong. But they're not battling each other. Each one is battling the forces that are around them within themselves and also outside. It's not a true garden in the sense when we think of garden. It's actually an orchard or a grove. And it's a grove of olive trees. And these gnarly olive trees are the staging area for one of the greatest battles that ever took place. But in this battle, no lives are lost In this battle, no one is physically wounded. But what we're going to see is that this battle is where the most significant encounter between Jesus and Satan will take place. This is where the battle is won and where where the battle is lost and where the war is won. Mark chapter 14, we'll begin in verse 27. You can follow along in your Bible, your phone, or with the scriptures on the text. This is from the New Living Translation. On the way, after having finished the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, in this upper room in Jerusalem, on the way to this garden, Jesus tells his band of disciples, the apostles, all of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. The disciples didn't hear anything except that first phrase where Jesus says, all of you will desert me. And Peter, as we would expect, as the spokesperson for the group, and also as the most impetuous, the most... Uh, uh, bold and brash, perhaps, Peter says to Jesus, even if everyone, these guys, I don't trust them. Even if they fall, and they probably will, I will never fall. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. Like you feel strong enough that even if everybody else can't make it, I'm going to make it. Even if they fall by the wayside, I'm strong enough that I can do it. The only time in my life I ever felt that was the second after I was baptized. When I came out of the water, I felt like I was literally 
Superman with all of the abilities that all of the superheroes had. That feeling didn't last long, <laughs> but I felt invincible, much like Peter in this particular situation. Jesus replies, I tell you the truth, Peter, verily, verily, I say unto you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, first time maybe three, four in the morning, second time maybe five or six in the morning, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. You will deny that you even know me. This idea of falling and denying Jesus is the Greek word skandalizo. Do you hear an English word in there, skandalizo? It's to be scandalized. Like there's something so horrific about being connected with Jesus that I'm going to deny even knowing him. I don't know who that is. We'll see next week in Peter's response. No, Peter declared emphatically. You know, you've got to appreciate a guy like Peter that can say no to Jesus. You're wrong, Jesus. <laughs> even if I have to die with you. I will never deny you. And all the others vowed the same. You know, when you're facing big struggles or you're facing big issues, life and death, I think all of us would tend to think that, yeah, I would stand up for Jesus. If someone was pointing a gun at my head and say, do you believe in God? I think I would say yes. Maybe. Most of us will never be in that situation, but some people have. And some people have stayed true. I, I think the bigger challenge for most of us is to live every day faithful. And every day not be scandalized by Jesus and his ethics and values. Every day do what is right. Peter says, even if I die, I will not deny you. And the others vowed the same. Then they get to the olive grove called Gethsemane, Hebrew word which means olive press. And evidently the owner of this particular grove of olives had went ahead and put the press where they would squeeze the olives to get the olive oil out uh, right there in the uh, garden or the grove itself. And Jesus says, sit here while I go and pray. So he takes his inner circle. The faithful three, Peter, James, and John, with him. The other disciples are a little bit distanced, and he becomes deeply troubled and distressed. These words are very rare in the Bible, and they indicate a level of despair and uh, uh, um, uh, horrific tragedy. There's a sense of horrified surprise in these words. Jesus becomes deeply troubled and distressed. He tells his three closest disciples, the ones that have been with him the longest and the closest to him, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. This is... Their hero, the strongest person they know, 
The person that can heal with just a word or a thought. A person who has spoken to the winds and the winds obey. A person that has spoken and given thanks and miraculously bread and food enough to feed thousands has appeared. This individual who has raised people from the dead now is admitting that his soul is crushed to the point of being so overwhelmed he feels like he could die. And he asks them to keep watch. Keep watch. Should have brought to their mind, a couple days ago, Jesus would have said, when the end comes, when the Son of Man is coming, you need to keep watch. Because you never know when it is. They should already be in a state of watching. He reminds them, keep watch. He went a little further fell to the ground and prayed. If it were possible that the awful hour awaiting him might pass by. The traditional posture for prayer for a Jewish man was uh, a standing with his hands raised, bowed, and in moments of severe anguish or turmoil, a person might lay prostrate on the ground, Jesus falls to the ground, and he prays that this hour, we'll come back to what that might mean in a minute, that this hour might pass. Abba, Father, he cries out. Abba was a Aramaic word that meant daddy. It, was a, it wasn't the word that children use when speaking to their father, but it was a very intimate term referring to God, uh, referring to the father. And Mark records this detail for us and says that's how Jesus addressed his father. Abba, father, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. First, he had talked about this hour that is awaiting him. And now he talks about this cup of suffering. Please take this away from me. God the Son is imploring God the Father for a change, for relief, for a different plan and a different way. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. This prayer, no doubt, was repeated because it was about an hour when he returns and finds the disciples asleep. And he said to Peter, the one that said, I'm with you right there. You can count on me. Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. So Jesus is couching this battle that Peter is facing as one of temptation. Jesus himself will return to the battle and continue to pray. He prays the same prayer as before, preparing himself for the hour and asking that the cup be removed. When he returns to them again the second time, he finds them sleeping. 
for they couldn't keep their eyes open. And we see their honesty. <laughs> they, they, they didn't know what to say. What could you say? I, I remember shortly after my conversion, um, I, I was at Fried Hardeman University. It was going to be two weeks away. And, and, and I was just like many of you after your conversions and your experiences, especially older in life, I, I felt I was on fire for God, and, and and I would try and pray in the morning and every moment that I could think of, and uh, it, it dawned on me that the best thing that I could do was to pray at night also, in addition to all the other prayers. And I remember the first night I prayed at night, uh, just laying in my bunk, my roommate was uh, was above me, and, and the next thing I knew it was morning, I fell asleep on God. I felt so devastated. <laughs> I apologized over and over. I'm so sorry. That'll never happen again. Next night, going to sleep, looking up at the bunk, start praying. Next thing I know, I'm waking up again. <laughs> I can relate to the disciples. Sometimes sleep overcomes. And they didn't know what to say. Jesus goes prays again and comes back a third time. <laughs> and this time he says, go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. And then immediately he says, no, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's get going. My betrayer is here. And so he must have heard the rustling in the grove at night and heard and saw the torches as Judas and the soldiers came approaching and so then his time in the grove of olives in Gethsemane was, was over. Well, this is one of the more profoundly difficult texts for us to think about because of how it portrays Jesus. But first, let's talk about the battle that was lost, the one that Peter and the disciples lost. Jesus had given them basically one command. There were two commands, but it was one command. Watch and pray. You'd have thought that they could have done that. But they were tired, the days were long, and they felt like they just couldn't keep their eyes open. You know, I think that they probably didn't understand what was at stake. If you have a procedure in the morning, let's say some sort of surgical procedure, very rarely will you be able to get a good night's sleep because your mind is going to be churning and thinking and what if and then, but no, but then here, but then th these individuals as tired as they might have been, weren't quite thinking that it's going to be that bad. You know, I don't know what the temptations that you face look like. But in my experience, I tend to minimize the force of those temptations. I can do this. I can overcome this. It's just X, whatever that might be. A study a couple of years back tracked the top temptations Americans face. And the temptations that they said were often or sometimes in their struggle were 
and see if you fall in this list. Worrying or being anxious, 60%. Procrastinating or putting things off, we would say that's not a temptation, that's not a sin, that's just you know how you do business. Uh, 60%. See, it gets real personal in a, in, a, in a heartbeat. Eating too much, 55%. Spending too much time on media, 44%. Being lazy, you think anyone would admit to that? 41%. It was an anonymous survey. Spending more money than they could afford, 35%. Gossiping about others, 26%. Being jealous or envious of others, 24%. Now, the thing that strikes me is, as we go through this list, the big ones that I'm thinking of, they're not there yet. Because there's a whole lot of things that we're concerned about, that tempt us, that we struggle with. Then we get to viewing pornography or sexually explicit material, 18%, abusing alcohol and drugs, 11%. Now, when asked if they tried to do anything specific to avoid giving in to the temptation, 59% said no. It's a temptation. I know it's there. What are you going to do? You can't fight it. You might as well go ahead and give in. Now, what you and I, for the most part, don't understand is that when there is a temptation, that means that I'm in a battle. It's a test. It's a situation where I am being pitted against the forces of evil. It's a cosmic battle, as it were, taking place whether I should eat a third piece of pie or not. And my mind says, yeah, I can handle this. I've got this. And my waistline says, no, Jim, you don't. There's a sense where I'm so confident in my ability that I don't need help. I just need to be stronger. And I lose. Peter lost. He's going to lose again in next week's sermon. While that battle is taking place, we see the other battle. And this is much more than a battle. This is where actually the war is taking place, and the war is won. The disciples have never seen Jesus like this before. You would have thought that it would have woken up their spirits to understand and know something really, really huge was going on. But the thing that that I struggle with is Jesus has been telling his disciples he's going to die. There are numerous accounts of humans facing their death and they do so bravely without wilting. Jesus, with all of his strength of character, should be acting like a much stronger person. It strikes me that these words, troubled to the point, sorrowful until death, overcome with emotion. And so I wonder, is it, well, is he just afraid of dying? Is he afraid of the physical pain? Is he afraid of, of, of what's going to happen at the crucifixion? Because I could understand that for a normal human being. 
But, but there seems to be something else happening. And I think that's where this talking about the hour and the cup. See, throughout Scripture, the cup is re- used to refer to the wrath of God. The cup is when the wrath of God is being poured out on humanity for their sin. And so Jesus is facing this cup of suffering. The consequence of being the sin of all the world. Because Jesus wasn't going to his death and he wasn't going to face God because of his sin. He he was facing God with the sins of all humanity for all time on his shoulders. If there's any way for us to imagine the brutality of all the sins of all civilizations for all time on Jesus' back and in this cup. This cup that was brimming with jealousy and hatred and, and covetousness and adultery and murder and all of the horrible things that you can think, that's the cup that Jesus is carrying before God. Because the scriptures tell us that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him to be a curse so that Christ could redeem us from the curse of the law. He became a curse. I think the weight of all of the sins of humanity and standing before a righteous and just God with all of these sins on him is what he was facing. And that weighed heavy, so heavy on his soul. We see Jesus' true self, fully divine and fully human, laid out, prostrate in the garden overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, horrified at the prospect of what awaits, not the physical death, but presenting himself before God with the sins of all humanity. And yet, before he leaves this garden, he has won the battle. He has won the war. And the way he does it is by prayer. The way he told the disciples to overcome their battle was by prayer. Now, I'll be honest with you. That seems like a trite religious answer. There's got to be something else. Let me add some other good stuff, right? Prayer? No, no, we've got to think about all these other different strategies and different kinds of things. That's what Jesus told them. To avoid temptation, to not fall into this temptation, to to demonstrate the strength of the spirit over the weakness of the flesh, watch and pray. And I want to add so many other things, but the text tells me that Jesus told the disciples to overcome through prayer and Jesus himself overcame through prayer. I don't know what the longest you've prayed is. 
Have you prayed an hour, like straight through? <laughs> I, I read uh, that um, someone suggested if, if there's some things that you need to do, if you have a to-do list and you can't remember what that to-do list is, you've forgotten what's on the list, just start praying. And your mind will get distracted enough that all of a sudden you'll think about all the things that you need to do and you write it down and then you go do it. Because when you start to pray, doesn't that happen? Your mind kind of gets distracted and you start thinking about all these other things that you need to be doing. <laughs> but what Jesus is telling us to do is something that we can all do. Pray. And this battle and this war is won or lost in this grove of trees at the point of prayer. Perhaps the temptations that I mentioned earlier are some of the ones that you're struggling with. For me, it all gets down to in spite of all of it, does God still love me? Does he still care? Because my tendency is to think I've failed him. I might as well go off in a corner and die. Does God really care? Brennan Manning is a well-known author, and probably the book that he's written that's most well-known is called The Ragamuffin Gospel. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. But he wasn't born with the name Brennan. It's kind of an odd name, right? He wasn't born Brennan Manning. I thought it was just some sort of Irish name or something. He was born Richard Francis Manning. <laughs> and he tells the story of how he got this name. He said growing up, his best friend was Ray. Two of them did everything together. They bought a car together. They double dated together. They went to school together. They enlisted in the army together. They went to Korea together. One night they were in a foxhole. Brennan and Ray. And they were thinking about their old days in Brooklyn. Ray was eating a chocolate bar. And suddenly a live grenade was thrown into the foxhole. Brennan says that Ray looked at Brennan, smiled, dropped his chocolate bar, and threw himself on top of the grenade. It exploded, killing Ray. And Brennan's life was spared. Years later, as Brennan was preparing to enter the priesthood, he was instructed to take on the name of a saint. And as he thought, he decided that he wanted to take on the name of his best friend, Ray. Ray Brennan. So he took his friend's last name, Brennan, and adopted it as his own. So the world knows him as Brennan Manning. One day he went to visit Ray's mom in Brooklyn. And they were just visiting together. I'm not really sure why the question came up, but at one point Brennan asks his mo Ray's mom, 
do you think that Ray loved me? I'm sure he was dealing with survivor's guilt and any number of different things. And he writes that Mrs. Brennan got up off the couch, shook her finger in front of Brennan's face and shouted, what more could he have done for you? What more could he have done to show you that he loved you? And he said at that moment he experienced an epiphany. And he imagined himself standing before the cross of Jesus, wondering, does God really love me? With all of my flaws and all of my faults and all of my junk, my weakness and my failures, does God really love me? And in his epiphany, in this vision, he pictures Jesus' mother, Mary, standing next to the cross, pointing to her son, saying, what more could he have done? What more could he have done? No matter where we've gone and what we've done, there's no doubt that God loves us. And so what we are motivated to do is to give our lives to him. And oddly enough, (laughs) oddly enough, the place where he wants us to start is by praying. By praying. You can pray in your car. You can pray in a line. You can pray anywhere. But that's not the kind of praying I think that Jesus has in mind. He's having he's he's thinking about that focused, directed prayer. That concentrates so much on God and about his will. Praying for strength to overcome the temptation. Praying for an hour that you don't fall into the temptation of wasting time or procrastinating or being anxious or whatever else is on your heart. The one thing Jesus told his disciples to do in the garden where the battle was won and lost. Watch and pray. And that's what I leave with you today. If we can help pray with you. Please make your way to the front as we stand and sing.